Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. If this is your first Sunday with us, I want to extend to you a special welcome and let you know that we are so glad you're here. And if you don't have a church home in our area and you're interested in getting connected in the life of our community, I just invite you after the service is over, when you walk out those double doors, you see we have a resource center. There's individuals there that would love to meet you, uh, to get to know with you and, and think with you about a ministry opportunity or a small group that would be a good fit for you. Uh, we at River Oaks, we believe that church is more than an event that you attend on Sunday morning. We believe that God intends for the church to be a place where you're known and cared for and encouraged in your relationship with Jesus. And so that's why we're always talking about things like small groups and service teams and ministry opportunities. Well, our, our passage for this morning's message comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy. And the name Deuteronomy is derived from a Greek word meaning second law. And the expression second law can be a little misleading because Moses isn't introducing a new set of laws to the Israelites. Rather, he's emphasizing those laws that were given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And as we think about these laws, it provides us an opportunity to reflect on a really important question. A question that's been a source of confusion for a lot of people today. And that question is this, what are we to make of all of these Old Testament laws? Uh, I think the confusion around this topic is illustrated very well for us. In a clip I'd like to show you from a television series called West Wing, uh, a friend of mine um, who would probably describe himself as a spiritual seeker, uh, he, he shared this clip with me uh, about a year ago on the heels of a conversation we had about the Christian faith. 
And uh, I, I've never actually seen an episode of The West Wing outside of this clip, so please don't take this as an endorsement for the show. But, but I think this, this particular scene uh, does a really good job illustrating for us some of the confusion that exists today around the Old Testament laws. <laughs> you know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, of the awesome impact. I'm sorry, uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can, how it can Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. Are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD? Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show, people call in for advice, and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show, and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last. Uh, I would suspect for many of us, those are questions we've probably thought about at one point or another. Here's, here's how it goes. If, 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 if Christians are people of the Bible, and when we read the Bible, we find all of these laws, then as, are we as Christians obligated to keep all of them? And if we say the answer to that question is no, if we don't have to obey all of them, if it's okay to plant an apple tree next to a fig tree and to leave here and have a BLT for lunch and to toss around the pigskin later, then... Are we just obeying the commandments that uh, we want to, and are we disregarding and ignoring the commandments that we don't like? Are, are we as Christians being inconsistent? It's a good question, isn't it? And the way that we answer that question is by looking at the purpose of the law. Why did God give the law? Uh, now, when I use the word law, 
Uh, I want to just, when you read the Bible, you can see it's, it's used in several different ways. Oftentimes, the word law uh, refers to the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, for instance, this is the sense uh, the word law is used when we read Acts 13, 15, and Luke tells us this. He says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them. But when I use the word law today, I'm specifically referring to the body of commands that are found in the Torah. So if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, I'm using the word law to refer to the commands given by Moses to the Israelites in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if we wanted to be more precise, it would be better to say these are commands given by God through Moses to the Israelites. And the reason I say that is because in the passage that Allison read for us earlier, we see Moses says this. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So what we see here is Moses is an intermediary. And the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law, it begins with the Ten Commandments, but there's actually 613 commands that are given to ancient Israel in these four books. And I want to clarify how I'm using the word law, because while the Torah has laws in it, it's important to remember that the Torah is fundamentally a story about God working in the world to bring redemption. And by way of a reminder of where we're at in this story, we see that after creation and sin entered the world, God calls a man named Abraham, and he determines to bless the world through Abraham's family. And as you recall, Abraham's family ends up in slavery in Egypt, and God rescues Abraham's family, who at this point are known as the Israelites, from their bondage, and he leads them into the wilderness and out Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant, or he makes an agreement with the Israelites. And the terms of the covenant are, are the various commands that begin with the Ten Commandments and then proceed from there into the book of Deuteronomy. Now, many people make the mistake of assuming that, that these commands were a, were a salvation strategy, that, that back in the Old Testament, people were saved by obeying these laws. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The law was not a job description to earn salvation. If you recall, when does God give the Ten Commandments to Israel? Is it before or after he's rescued them from slavery? It's after, right? God doesn't come down to the Israelites and say, Look, uh, I see your plight. You guys uh, sure are in a, in a rough spot. That Pharaoh is, uh, is one tough cookie. So uh, here's what I'll do. Uh, I'm going to give you these commands, and I want you to do your best to follow them. And I'll be back in, in six months to check up on you. And if, if, you've, if you've fulfilled them 70% of the time, then I'll save you. God doesn't do that, does he? So we know that the law comes after the people have been saved. And that's important. So if the law isn't a means to earn salvation, what was its purpose? I'm going to give you a, a broad 30,000 foot answer and then we're going to drop down and we're going to get more granular. So the big picture answer is that the law was essentially an invitation to live in accordance with the image of God 
and to be in fellowship with the Lord. So the Mosaic Law, it was, it was an invitation to live in accordance with the image of God and to be in fellowship with the Lord. And here, here's why we can say that. Before God gives the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, what we, what we read in Exodus 19 is this. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on angels' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God says, people of Israel, I want to enter into a unique relationship with you. You're going to be very special to me. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, God isn't uh, just referring to the role that Aaron and his descendants would play as priests. What God is saying is that by keeping the, the commandments found in the law, that the whole nation will be priests. Now, how can this be? Well, let's just think for a minute about what priests do. Priests, essentially, what they do is they serve the Lord. And we know from the very beginning of the story that this is what Adam and Eve were originally created to do. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to serve the Lord by cultivating life in the garden. They would reflect the image of God in the way that they, they cared for and ruled over the creation and, and took the blessing that was found in the garden and they extended it outward. But that plan was shattered when Adam and Eve sinned. And what we see is that the, the Imago Dei, or the image of God, was marred. And it only goes downhill from Genesis 3. When we read the, the book of Genesis, it reminds us of an episode of the Jerry Springer show. We see humans fighting. We see deception. We see murder. Uh, we see all kinds of things that make us realize that God's likeness isn't being reflected by mankind. But what we see going on in Exodus 19, right before the law is given, is God's plan to restore mankind to his service. So God is saying, Israel, I'm going to give you these laws that will be a reflection of my character and my wisdom. These laws show that I care about purity and justice. These laws show that I value compassion uh, that I care for the innocent, that, that, that I value righteousness. And when God invited the Israelites to obey these laws, he was restoring their capacity to do what God originally created mankind to do, to reflect his image, to represent him in the world. And by serving God in this way and obeying the commandments, Israel would remain in fellowship with God. So, so God is inviting the Israelites to be his treasured possession. And, and for the ancient Israelite, we know that obedience wasn't a, a works-based salvation strategy. Obedience was supposed to flow from faith. Their obedience was a, a way of demonstrating their trust or their faith in God. So with that really big picture view in mind, let's get a bit more granular. More specifically, we can see that the law 
accomplished three purposes, or it was given for three reasons. Number one, we can say that the law preserved and promoted the well-being of the nation by governing their relationship with God and one another. So said another way, the law upheld the fabric of the society. Now I realize when many people think of the law, they get the sense that these regulations must have been stifling and oppressive. But as I read uh, the book of Deuteronomy, here's what I see. I, I read it last week, and I made note of over 20 passages, just like the one that Allison read for us earlier in Deuteronomy 6, where God says this, Be careful to do them, that it may what? That it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Or we find this later in that chapter. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statues and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statues to fear the Lord our God for, for God's own amusement. No. It says for our, let's say it together, good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And so you see, uh, far from being a burden, the law was intended to bring blessing. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as if we would be most free if any time we had an impulse or a desire, we acted on it. But we know that isn't true. I mean, what if I said that vegetables don't taste good anymore? What I prefer is Krispy Kreme donuts topped with, with frosting and sprinkles. In fact, that's all I'm going to eat from now on. And, uh, and if I get thirsty, I'm going to wash it down with some Mountain Dew because that, that uh, sugar-infused yellow syrup, that stuff is just the nectar of the gods, and it tastes so much better than water or kale smoothie. So that's my new diet, Krispy Kreme and Mountain Dew. If that was my new diet, there would come a point in time when I would actually lose some of my freedom, wouldn't it? My kids would say, Dad, will you take us hiking or will you go ride bikes with us? And I'd say, ugh, <laughs> no way, you know? I can barely make it from the bed to the couch. See, see freedom is kind of a, a two-sided coin. It's not simply the ability to do what we want. It's also the ability to do as we ought you can claim that eating a balanced diet is restrictive and it limits your freedom, but when you eat as you ought, when you have a, a healthy diet, you actually maintain your freedom. And in the same way, the Mosaic Law wasn't God's plan to put the Israelites back under bondage. Rather, the commands that he gave Israel were designed to keep them out of bondage. As the designer of life and creation, God knows best how we are to relate to Him and to one another. And so these rules 
just like the Bill of Rights, are what allow a free people to stay free. Now, before we go on from here, it might be helpful if we look at the commands in a bit more detail. Because key to grasping their relevance for Christians today is understanding the laws fell into three categories. Now, for the Old Testament Israelite, the law was a total package. But because of God's progressive revelation, we can look back and we can see God gave ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. The, the ceremonial laws are all the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the rituals that pointed towards Christ. The sacrifices in particular show us how uh, a rebellious and sinful people can live and fellowship with the holy God. And we know from reading the New Testament that these laws, they prefigured Jesus. And because Jesus has fulfilled them, we're no longer required to obey them. So as an example, Christians no longer uh, are obligated to observe Passover because 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Similarly, in Colossians 2, we see this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So as Christians, if we walk out of here and we want to have some fried calamari for lunch or, or scallops wrapped in bacon, we are free to do that. The law gives us that freedom. In Mark 7, Jesus declares all food to be clean. And as we think about the place of these ceremonial laws in our lives, Galatians 5, 2 is really helpful. Paul writes this. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And in place of circumcision, we could substitute any of the ceremonial laws. It's fine if out of personal preference, a Christian chooses not to eat pork or shrimp or catfish. But the minute anyone adopts a specific diet and says this is a necessity for salvation or this is a necessity for maturing in the Christian faith, they are distancing themselves from Christ. They're cutting themselves off for Christ. They're rejecting the gospel. And so Christians are not being inconsistent. They're being biblical when they don't observe the ceremonial laws. We're recognizing their temporary nature in God's plan of redemption because we see that's just what the Bible tells us. And God also gave civil or judicial laws to the Israelites. What these laws did is they restrained evil. They promoted justice. They protected the innocent. As examples, these laws would include uh, punishment for specific offenses or the establishment of cities of refuge for involuntary manslaughter or setting aside a tenth of your earnings every third year to give to the poor. And as we think about these laws, it's important to remember that God was establishing a theocratic state at Mount Sinai. So these laws were given specifically to the nation of Israel to govern life and their agrarian culture. And like the, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws are no longer binding to Christians because the people of God are no longer a political entity. With the coming of Christ, Christians are now people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. Christians are woven into every ethnicity. And although these, these civil laws served a temporary purpose, that doesn't mean we just discard them. 
We don't ignore them because the laws are a reflection of God's character. They give us insight into the mind of God. They give us wisdom. So as an example, this is what we read in Leviticus 23. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, how many of us here have fields? I'm guessing most of us aren't farmers, right? But that doesn't mean we just discard this, because there's an important biblical principle here. What we see is that God cares how we treat the poor and the foreigner. And so what that tells us is that when we as Christians, when we have the opportunity to influence the laws of our society, when we have the opportunity to steward our resources, we need to be mindful of how God would want us to treat the poor and the marginalized. Another example from the book of Deuteronomy would be that that God instructed the Israelites to put to death people who committed certain sins. Now, the church doesn't do this anymore. But that doesn't mean that God no longer cares about the conduct of his people or the purity of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us about this man who's flaunting his sexual relationship with his stepmother. And, And Paul doesn't write to the church in Corinth and say, take this man outside the city gate and stone him to death. But what Paul does say is you need to put him out of the church. You need to excommunicate him if he willfully persists in this kind of sin, in this kind of immorality. And so Christians uh, were no longer obligated to obey the civil laws because the people of God are no longer a specific nation, but we still look to them for wisdom because they offer these enduring biblical principles. Finally, there are moral laws, and these laws are timeless. The God who gave these laws hasn't changed his mind about what's immoral and immoral. And one of the ways we know the moral commandments that are still relevant today is because they're repeated in the New Testament. So the Ten Commandments, for instance, says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.25, and he says, Put away all falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Or Exodus 20.14 says, You shall not commit adultery. Well, 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality, and it goes on from there. In fact, Jesus raises the bar on these moral commands. He says adultery isn't just about avoiding some physical act. Because if you look at someone who isn't your spouse with a lustful intent, you've committed adultery. And so Jesus shows that these moral laws are more than a a surface-level obedience that God's looking for. He's, He's looking for purity of heart. And Jesus goes on to summarize all all these moral laws. He says, uh, we can boil it down to two commandments. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the New Testament makes clear that Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean we're indifferent to all the moral commands because these commands help us understand how it is that we love God and love our neighbor. They add color to these commands. So what we see as we read the Bible is we see that God still loves honesty. He still loves purity. And and there are certain things that are still displeasing or offensive to him. 
and they're still harmful to us. And that's why, as Christians, we just don't discard the moral law. Now, as the ancient Israelites obeyed these laws, not only did it fulfill an internal purpose of promoting the well-being of the nation, it also accomplished an external purpose. The law set apart Israel from their neighbors and revealed God to the other nations. See, what happened is these laws were designed to make Israel distinct among all the nations of the earth. Life in Israel would be remarkably different from life in Assyria or Edom or Moab. Compared with the other nations, God is pushing Israel to much higher levels of justice and compassion and care for the poor and the orphan. And in Deuteronomy 4, Moses tells the people this. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? So what we see here is that the law had a missional purpose. The law would not only bring blessing to Israel, it would also draw attention to Israel's God. As Israel pursued holiness through obeying these laws, they would point the nations away from their false idols, and they would direct them to the one true God who said, Be holy as I'm holy. And in the same way, God still intends for Christians today to be set apart from the world by their holiness. Uh, 1 Peter 1 tells us this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is a theme in the New Testament. Philippians 2 says that we're to, to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Jesus says, We're to let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. While Christians no longer obey the ceremonial and the civil laws, the incentive to obey God's moral laws and to pursue a holy life is the same. 1 Peter tells us that when when we do this, we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And so as Christians, we still need to be prepared sometimes to stand out, to look different from the culture, from those around us, and to adhere to convictions the world might not understand. Now this brings us to our final and most important point as we think about the purpose of the law. The law reveals sin for what it is, and it brings us to Jesus. Said another way, the law reveals the condition of our hearts and shows us that we need a Savior. We see the law function this way when the rich young ruler interrupted Jesus on his journey and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response, you'll recall Jesus cited some of the Ten Commandments. And the young ruler uh, rather self-confidently assured Jesus, yes, all of these I've kept since I was a youth. 
And the Bible tells us this, that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Whoa, (laughs) that's a little harsh. Uh, I, I thought it said that Jesus loved him. Yes, this is love. Because what Jesus is doing is helping this man realize that he hasn't even kept the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus wants this man to realize that, that God isn't after some surface level obedience. He's after purity in the heart. And Jesus can do something we can't. He can look at the heart. And as he looks at this man, he knows that this man loves money more than he loves God. And Jesus is helping this man come to grips with the fact that his pride in his moral conduct is going to be his undoing. Jesus wants to bring this man to the place where he realizes that he hasn't kept the law, that he can't fulfill it, that he isn't able to do what the law requires. And once that happens, then this man can receive the grace that Jesus wants to offer. Romans 3.20 puts it like this. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what the law does is it's like a giant searchlight, and it reveals to us our sin. We look at the law and we see, oh, we haven't kept it. We're prideful. We covet. We lust. There's not one of us who can look honestly at God's moral law and say, yeah, I fulfilled it. And for the person here who's maybe thinking, well, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. I hope you will measure yourself against what God's law demands. Because if you do that, surely you will realize that you fall short of what God's law requires. Surely you will exclaim with the Apostle Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death. And when you realize that, Jesus is waiting with open arms. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law is a tutor. After showing us our sin, what it does is it drives us to our knees as we realize our helpless condition. And then it directs us to the foot of the cross. The law gives us clear sight of our need for Jesus. And once we embrace Jesus by faith, we can sing, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Only God knows the condition of your heart. Only God knows what's going on in your soul. And I would urge you, if you are looking to a law for salvation to be right with God, whether it's the law found in the Bible or some other law that you've concocted, some code that just seems right to you, I want you to know something. 
that law can never save you. Only Jesus can save you. See, not only did Jesus live a perfect life and fulfill all the requirements of the law, he also bore the penalty for our failure to keep the law. And when we sin, when we break the law, what we earn is death. But Jesus bore that penalty on the cross. And because Jesus did that, righteousness before God isn't something that we need to achieve. Rather, righteousness before God is something that we receive by grace through faith. It's a gift. And looking at the law helps us realize we need to receive this gift. And if you've never received this gift before, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Let's all just bow our head for a moment. God, this is a, this is a weighty subject that is a source of confusion. And if I have said anything or taught anything in error today, I pray that by your Spirit that you would correct that and you would help us to think the right thoughts about your will and your ways. God, I pray especially for the person here who through this explanation of the law has come to realize their need for Jesus. And if that's you, I just invite you to voice a prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I know that I am in need of your forgiveness. I turn over control of my life to you. And I invite you to come into it, to fill me with your spirit, and to help me walk in your ways. I want to live for you. Amen.